0: Welcome to the CHRO S.A. Podcast. In this episode, Debile Kulu from Mondelez International will share her surprising view on transformation, a practical approach to dealing with black tax, and why she's so passionate about work readiness. The CHRO Podcast allows you to get up close and personal with some of South Africa's top HR leaders – HR executives are critical to organizational growth and sustainability, and this series gives you a glimpse into the lives of those that are leading the way. This episode is brought to you by Workday, a cloud-based financial management and human capital management software vendor. Welcome to the first
1: ever episode of the CHRO podcast. My name is Kabinde and I'm the managing editor of CHRO South Africa. We've decided to create this medium so that our community members can find a new way to engage with our content and community members. And in this episode, we are going to be speaking to one of the country's top HR leaders, Tebile Kulu. She is the HR director at Mondelez International for Southern and Central East Africa. She has previously worked in Amsterdam at the headquarters of Heineken International, where she was the Leadership and Capability Development Manager for Africa, the Middle East, and Eastern Europe. Before that, she had been at Messonite Africa, Lee HBC, the A-Cubed Institute, and Tongard Hewlett. She was also one of South Africa's top 19 HR leaders who were nominated for the inaugural HR Awards. Welcome to the show. Hi, Sungula. Very well, thank you, and thanks for having me. I mean, whenever you open your mouth or your laptop, for that matter, you are extremely candid. For example, you wrote an article in CHRO magazine called The Truth About Transformation, where you didn't hold back about how far corporate South Africa was from really achieving transformation. And last year in August at the women's dinner, you spoke quite openly about being discriminated against for the
2: way you wore your hair. Have you always been this um, outspoken? (laughs) Yes, I believe so. I was raised by strong women from my mother's side of the family, um, they have quite powerful voices in my village um, of Ndenbiswini in Greytown, where I come from. My father, uh, who was also a very strong Zulu man, traditionalist, um, strangely raised me to have an opinion, to speak my mind. He always insisted that I give him my opinion whenever family decisions were to be made, even if he didn't necessarily go with what I had recommended, but he always encouraged me to say what I th- what I think. That's fascinating.
1: You know, um, in African culture, it's not usual that an elderly person would encourage a young person to speak their mind regardless of who they're speaking to. How did that translate to, you know, the way you engaged with your peers? Because I'm sure they didn't get the same kind of encouragement.
2: (laughs) Yes, if, if you were to see where I come from, uh, you know, that that statement is uh, is definitely true. I come from a village where girls, when they grow up, they are still expected to just grow up, go to school just enough so you can write and you can read a letter and you can count money. But don't get too educated. Otherwise, you become too powerful and, and, and nobody wants to marry you. Um, but it, it, it helped me a lot. I, I, I assumed leadership um, you know, roles at, at primary school, at high school, at university. So for me, this is, I think, one thing that as a parent, um, I, I, I learned and now I'm a parent and, and I want to instill in my children that, you know, never silence your voice. Always speak and always be. Confident in what you um, in what you know, and my parents helped me do that. And yes, it did not um, necessarily make me popular with the men that I grew up with, uh, who always found me to be a little bit too, you know, opinionated and outspoken for their liking. But I think I attracted women and and young women at that time who who wanted to know how do we become like you? How do we just speak up? I still do now. So I think it helped in that sense. That's um very interesting
1: and a great segue into our next question, which is about the work you're doing with the young people. Why have you decided to, you know, make it a passion of yours to mentor these young individuals starting their careers? Why is it so important to you?
2: You know, Sungula as I mean, you know me by now. I come from a rural village, like really, really rural, dusty. It's not a township. It's a proper, proper imakaya. There was really nothing that was happening. The only professionals that you were exposed to as a a child growing up were teachers. And um, so teachers in the school. And luckily, I had teachers in my family. And that's the only profession that I knew. When I graduated with my honors degree in industrial psychology and political science, I was quite overwhelmed because didn't know what do I do now with this qualification that I have, because apart from what I've studied, I've not seen anyone do anything different other than being a teacher or being a doctor when I got the chance to go to the doctor um, in, in town. So when I look back, um, if I had mentors, if I had someone who had g- given me career coaching, you know, I. Um, A lot of my frustrations and a lot of my anxiety would have been dramatically reduced had I had mentors. This is why now I go out of my way to help young people who need it and who are actually serious about their career journeys. Mm. And it's actually quite an interesting story.
1: About how this all came together I remember you telling me that This work readiness program that you started Actually began with uh, a conversation You were having with people on Twitter How did that happen?
2: (laughs) Yes, wow You know, that happened um, I think it was December 2017 I was at home, again back in the village Just lying on my bed Catching up on Twitter And I saw a tweet From actually one of the PR And reputational management experts it's Hunga. Um, he's very active on Twitter. And he was actually appealing to people to offer some kind of assistance to unemployed black graduates. And I saw this and I thought, wow, OK, what is it that I could contribute? I've been in HR now for almost 19 years. Um, so the one thing I know very well is the world of work and what happens when you start looking for work, what happens when you are about to find work and when you actually start the first six months. What happens? What are some of the pitfalls that young people tend to actually fall into and then they don't make it or they make mistakes that could you know, be avoided? So I responded to him and um, said, look, I'll offer a coaching program for unemployed young graduates. And we started, I think we started with about 40 just literally started off on Twitter. We invited people. We asked for um, someone to host us. And uh, very kindly, Balo World, CHRO, actually Tanta Swafubu, who's uh, my mentor and who was actually nominated for the CHRO of the Year Award, said, hey, I like what you're doing. I'll give you the venue for free because this is actually free if you're unemployed. And then we started and we ran that program. It was quite successful and, and we covered a lot of things. Uh, you know, what happens when you start looking for for work? How do you brand yourself as a young person starting to approach, you know, prospective employers? What happens in an interview? Some of the stories are shocking of what I heard. Um, You know, what happens when people go to interviews is quite embarrassing, actually, for me as an HR professional. We went through things like entrepreneurship for those that are not going to get into being employed by someone else. We invited social media experts, lawyers to come and talk about how can you use social media gainfully and what are some of the dangers of not being able to use social media appropriately. Uh, We covered a lot of things. I mean, I went into a whole section of the first 180 days of you being employed because CEOs and all these big people talk about the first 90 days or the first 100 days. For us ordinary people, it goes beyond the hundred days. You know, the first six months is quite critical. Um, how do you build networks? How do you develop yourself? How do you understand the rules that are not written anywhere in an organization? So that's what we basically did. Um, we also spoke to them. You know, whilst you're waiting for that opportunity that you are looking for, how do you build the soft skills? That actually the world of work is going to ask you for, you know, how do you involve yourself in in social clubs and learn some leadership skills and become a treasurer of your sports uh, football club so that you learn how to work with money. But you learn how to work with different people, which is different from when you are actually at school. So we we did that uh, one Saturday a month. And actually, I've been getting calls to um, run another repeat of those. So we want to time it around graduation, just before graduation and just after graduation. And it was quite um, successful. I mean, I got people just volunteering, experts in marketing, saying, please, I'll do the personal branding module. So we got the marketing manager from Shell coming to do this. Um, you know, personal branding experts coming to to help us, lawyers. Shaw himself was involved for entrepreneurship. We got Lynette and Dooley to come and run that particular module. So, yeah, that's what we did. Mm, that's a, That's actually quite remarkable. For people to come together like that for a common cause,
1: Without expecting any kind of pay or recognition, it's quite rare to see. But um, what are some of the horror stories that you've heard from these young people starting their careers and are often the first people to go to university and start a a job in their family? What kind of challenges are they coming to you with and what is the advice that you have for them?
2: (sighs) to be quite honest, it was quite disheartening for me, some of the things that I heard these young people actually telling us about. But what I heard and what I realized is that corporate South Africa is generally toxic. Even before you get in, you walk through the door, you're still looking for a job and already you get these very bad experiences. What I also heard was that interviews themselves are horror shows for young people because one, Hiring managers are generally not trained in how to actually conduct interviews in a way that that respects the next person's dignity. For me, it it just boils down to that. The the graduates have found HR people to be just an all-round disappointment, really. They said that we sit in interviews and we say nothing. And when the hiring managers are, you know, running wild asking all sorts of embarrassing questions, HR doesn't step in to say Excuse me, you cannot actually ask these questions. Um, Some of the questions we know as HR people that are actually illegal to ask, like how many children do you have? Um, Do you plan on having any children anytime soon? You already have four children, so how are you going to do this job which involves travel? So basically, um, it it, it really was quite disappointing for me as an HR person to hear that as a profession. We also have such a huge role to play in how people get treated when they come into an organization, when we should be the ones actually holding everybody accountable to the standard and the values that each organization actually say they want to live by. There were things like, apart from the discriminatory questions, we don't even hear back from the organization once we've been interviewed. So I always say... We get thousands of applications for jobs. So it's really practically impossible to engage with every applicant. However, once you've invited someone to an interview, you owe them the courtesy of telling them if they have not been successful. So we don't get back to people and people are just left in limbo not knowing what happened, not knowing whether they got the job or not and why they didn't get the job if they didn't get it. The other thing that I also heard was how very big respected organizations in this country are exploiting graduates by paying them ridiculously low salaries when you know what the actual minimum, um, now we have a minimum wage, but even before that, when you know that for a graduate who has an engineering degree or whatever degree for that particular job, a reasonable starting salary should be, let's say 15,000 Rand and that particular company can actually afford that. But HR then presides over those decisions to pay someone 2,000 Rand. I mean, how are they supposed to get to work to begin with? And you can afford, I'm not talking about SMMEs here. I'm not talking about small businesses. Businesses that are saying we'll give you the experience, but we're very small and we can't afford to pay you the salary and then you make a choice. I'm talking big corporates in, in 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 the country. So those were some of the things that we found. That's why the training program that we ran actually simulated interviews. So we didn't just stand on the stage and say, this is how an interview works. We ran the interviews with the graduates so that they know we threw these questions at them and then we coached them on how to actually respond. The last thing that we actually did was um, offer pre-interview coaching for individuals that had been on our program. I do that for Twitter as well. I still do it even today. People DM me. I have an interview interview. And then I pick 20 minutes when I get home and I call the person and I walk them through what are you worried about when you go into this interview? Do you know this? Do you know this? Do you know that? You can never give anyone a script. And I think that's where most people go wrong. Every interview is going to be different. You just need to be prepared very generally on how to handle interviews. And then we unpack their um, salary offers. So when they've been made an offer, those that have been on the program, we say to them don't accept it until you've spoken to one of us. I often am the one that gets all of those questions and then we make sure that we actually explain to them what is this offer what does total cost to company mean what does basic plus benefits mean what is pay as you earn what is uif what are you actually going to get in your bank account because i got people crying at the at the session saying well they said they'll pay me thirty thousand rand but when I got paid at the end of the month, it was 11,000 grand. And I had already bought a BMW and I already had an apartment in four ways. Like, okay, this is how it actually works. So all of those things um, are practical things that we actually do to make people's lives a little bit easier than what we had to go through when we started out.
1: Mm. Yeah, no, that, um, that actually reminds me of what you spoke about in your article, The Truth About Transformation, where you actually said that women were checking out of some very critical sectors because of hostile cultures. It makes me wonder, is corporate South Africa doing enough for black professionals and black women in particular?
2: Okay, so firstly, if we look at all the information that's coming out, I mean, I look at the 19th Commission of Employment Equity report, the latest one, which covers the year 2018 and 2019. And if you look at it, you see that a top management only 23% of those positions are held by women or women hold 23% of top management positions in the country. But women make up 45% of the economically active population. It's there in black and white. So what does this tell you? Why are we not able to change that picture quite dramatically? Because if you look from 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018, um, 2019, you'll see that there's probably been just a 1% shift from 22% to 23%. I'm just talking specifically top management because we do have women coming in. But the higher you go, you start seeing very, very few women in the boardrooms, in the decision-making positions in this country. Uh, Why is that? The second thing is around race. And I know these are sensitive topics and nobody wants to actually talk about them, um, especially if you you, you you have a job like me who's employed. But I honestly believe we have to talk about these things. Otherwise, we're failing our economy. If you look at the race component, I think the report says about 66% top management positions are held by men, Right. That's still the gender part. But if you look at the representation of white nationals at top management, that is the 66%. How is that when black people actually make up 78% of the economically active population? It doesn't make sense just from that perspective. And this is how many years now into democracy? How many years into the Employment Equity um, Act having been in place. So for me, those two things are just an indicator that as corporate South Africa, we don't care about the majority of the people in this country. And it's really about protecting the legacy of apartheid. That's my personal opinion. If you look at the skills development uh, uh, comments on that report, they also indicate that white people still receive the bulk of the training that is supposed to be going to the other designated groups. Read the report. It's in the report. It's not something that I'm making up. Um, My own experience is that Indian nationals are still, South African Indian um, nationals, are still better off than black Africans because also these definitions must either be done away with or they must really be clarified. So black Africans as well as colored South Africans. Um, Indians still occupy more senior level kind of roles and they still get most of the opportunities when it comes to learning and development in organizations. The final aspect um, that I look at and I see that is actually posing a challenge is the leadership styles. If you look at the 66% white representation at top management and if you think of how general perceptions in the society of the role of black women I mean, it makes sense. I was having a conversation with someone who said, actually, when you walk through the room, and this is how she feels, and this is how I've felt in most uh, uh, occasions um, in, in the past, people are looking at you through the same lens that they look at Auntie Rose, who looks after their kids and who makes tea and who works in their kitchen. So before you open your mouth, there's already that. So if you are in a space that has people that look nothing like you it's very difficult to actually penetrate those walls and i'm not saying women haven't done it they have but it's been damn hard to actually fight your way through all the prejudices all the stereotypes that come with being a black woman secondly we expect women to work as hard as men as if they don't have children And then we expect them to get home and still look after the home as if they don't have a full-time job. That is hard. And unless we start changing the way that society looks at the responsibility of the men in in the family, the way we raise boys, this thing is going to continue for long. And then most women are being forced to say, well, there's an opportunity for me to do this job, but I've got three kids. So now I've got to make a choice. I cannot take on the role that takes me up to director level because it involves long hours. I cannot be there for all my children's sporting activities. I have to choose work over my kids and then that's not going to happen. I'm going to choose my children and therefore I'm going to quit. And I'm going to go and do something that allows me to still be a mother, still be a wife and still have an income. For me, this is where corporate South Africa needs to change mindset. We talk about flexible um, working arrangements. I hear a lot of people in South Africa are very scared because they don't trust that people are actually going to do the work if they are not sitting in the office. I think Mondelez, we've moved a little bit beyond that. We even have less desks in the office. So not everyone has a desk because we actually encourage people to work from home more than they actually come to the office. So there are small things that need to change. And then there are big things that need to change, like leadership attitudes. If you're still leading with the mindset of a military general, it's not going to work now. If you're still leading with a Western European mindset, it's not going to work in Africa. And a lot of people who are very conscious of their African identity are not going to put up with being treated like they're second class citizens on their own soil. So... People will check out if they feel that the company is not treating me as an individual. I'm not allowed to be myself here. I have to put on a mask when I walk through the door because I'm not going to be accepted by certain groups in this organization unless I conform to this Western style of corporate cultures. Right. So we have to start talking a little bit more about that. What works for us as Africans? Where does it need to change? And then maybe the next generation will have a much better experience. Wow. Um,
1: You know, what you've just said uh, really rings true with my own experience. When you say that the face that people have to put on at work is different from the person that they are in their natural environment. That really hit home because when I speak to my friends, they speak often about how they have to change who they are to really fit into the corporate culture that they work in. And um, this is something that is so
2: entrenched. How do
1: we begin to change this
2: issue? (laughs) We have to change the face of um, the boardrooms. We have to. And what always frustrates me, and I'm not blaming the government alone because we in corporate also have this responsibility, but I always feel like the government takes a very softly, softly approach to these issues, right? We're very good with other issues, but these issues, I don't think the government realizes that we're actually denying the economy, this pool of people that are checking out because the world of work is not designed for them. So they'll rather go elsewhere and either, you know, sit at home or or get into informal employment sectors, which is fine also because, you know, we need the job creation. But I think we're depriving ourselves of very talented individuals who just feel, I just can't do this. I choose my well-being and I choose my family and I'm going to check out and I'm going to stop working for a big corporate. But until we change the face of the decision-making boardrooms in South Africa, then it's going to stay like this, unfortunately. So I think there has to be a little bit more push from the government as well in terms of legislation and its its enforcement. So the legislation is there and it's good, but I don't think it's enforced. People get away with not submitting their employment equity reports because the fine is 1.5 million rand. I heard that it was going to be increased. I'm not sure if it has. I know of companies that say, we'll budget for this fine, but we are not going to do this. In Africa, guys, you know, so we are not going to open up opportunities for the majority we want to leave them frustrated you know like they don't have a place in their own country we'll just exclude them from the economy because this is what you are doing when you exclude people out of uh, you know job opportunities we'll exclude them out of the economy we'll continue exactly the way things were before democracy and we'll just budget for these little fines that the government is throwing in our direction i think that needs to be um seriously looked into um And I think organized labor needs to also start having the interests of the workers at heart. I might get crucified for this, but my own personal view, having worked with organized labor for so many years, is that it it sometimes just devolves to people having their own interest. You know, they have positions, they get paid with all of these subscriptions that come from the workers. And I, I sometimes find that we are now not looking at the big picture in terms of where the country needs to go, we're now fighting political battles uh, using these constituencies that we represent as, as 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 organized labor. So if we move away from that and we start having a big picture mindset of the economy, I think we can really make a serious dent into some of the inequalities that we currently see, that we see so many years after um, democracy, which is really not right. Yeah, um, some very strong points
1: again. And this is not something that we don't know. that's often talked about, but
0: rarely is it spoken about so bluntly. And that's
1: why we have you on the show.
0: Thanks for joining us on part one of the CHROSA podcast brought to you by Workday, a cloud-based financial management and human capital management software vendor.